remain standing for the reading of God's word. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of all the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst, fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of the hosts. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. City Church, I am so grateful to be with you, to bring the word for us this morning. Uh, the passage that we're looking at is particularly exciting to me, and so I actually requested to preach it. So far in the book of Haggai, we've looked at two messages from God to the people. In the first message, God told the people, consider your ways, consider your ways. We learned that right worship was not their priority, and so God told them, he rebuked them, he said, consider your ways, turn. And then last week we read God's message to the people in the midst of their discouragement. The people uh, did consider their ways, they turned and they began obeying, but shortly after that they found themselves discouraged. And so God came to them with another message and he says, be strong, work hard, don't be afraid. And the people were blessed in their obedience. Right worship resulted in blessing, and the blessing was the Lord's presence with them. And it wasn't a presence like we think of as God is everywhere. We're not talking about his, his omnipresence. No, he was present with them and with a covenantal presence, like a spouse. Someone saying, I'm with you, I'm for you. We are one, and we are going to get through this together. God is with us in that same presence this morning. So let's pray and ask his blessing on this time. Our Father, we, we love you. We are so grateful for your kind words to us, for the exciting words that you deliver to us through the prophet Haggai. We pray that you would be with us, uh, blessing us, uh, uniquely conforming us uh, to the image of Jesus Christ. For we ask it in his name. Amen. Now, I hope the messages that we've received so far from Haggai have been uh, very relieving to us. I hope they've been a comfort and an encouragement to your soul, and I want you to think about it uh, for just a minute, because we make the same mistakes that the people in Haggai's time made. God came to the people, gave them a message, told them to turn. They do it. Shortly after, 
they are already grumbling. They're already complaining. And yet still, God says, I'm with you. I am not that kind of parent. If my kid starts grumbling two minutes after I tell them to do something, um, I, I'm frustrated. I'm angry. God didn't do that here. He said, I'm with you. And what did God want them to do with this comfort that he just brought to them? This, these great words that he just gave them to be strong, to work hard, uh, to... Uh, um, uh, this, this reassurance that he was with them. What does he want them to do? He wants them to put it to use, right? They had a project to do. They had something they were working on. So he didn't want them to take that comfort and kind of wrap themselves up in it and lay back in their lazy boys. They had done enough of that. They had worked long and hard enough on their paneled houses. God was saying, no, I have a different thing for you to do, and you need to work hard. And today we read Why? God's going to reveal something to the people about the future. He's going to tell them his plan. He's going to tell them where all their work is going, what it's going to produce. He's going to tell them about the future of the temple, the future of this thing that they're working on. In other words, he's going to tell them about the future of worship. And that's the key for us. That's what uh, God's word teaches us today. It's about the future of worship. It's not just about the future of Israel's worship at the time of Haggai. It is the future of our worship today. The future of what we're doing here. Why does this matter? What is this, or, uh, this service of worship? Why does it matter? Where is it going? What's it doing? And we'll see from this passage that the future of Christian worship is rich. It is glorious. It is full of peace. And we are building it. So let's walk through the text together. If you notice, uh, the last verse of chapter 1, it ends, it says, in the sixth month. And then chapter 2 begins in the seventh month. So not much time has passed, only about four weeks. Four weeks, and God comes with another message for Haggai to deliver the people, and he says, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? Okay, you're complaining about this new temple, that it's not like Solomon's temple. But how many of you even saw Solomon's temple? At the time that Haggai is preaching, it's 520 B.C., okay? And the temple of Solomon was destroyed in 586 B.C. So it's been 66 years. That means anybody who saw Solomon's temple would be at least in their 70s if they've got any memory of it, okay? And so it's likely these folks who are telling the stories, who are reminding people of what the temple used to be like, they're kind of um, leading perhaps in the discouragement because they're saying this is not like it used to be. They're seeing the foundation of the new temple and they're thinking this temple is just not like the old one. And so God even says to them in our text, is it not as nothing in your eyes? Referring to the temple. But nevertheless, God comes with a message of courage. He doesn't come with a message of condemnation, saying, why don't you trust me? He comes with a message of courage. He tells them, be strong, work, I am with you, fear not. And then we get to verse 6. For thus says the Lord, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. Notice the transition from verse 5 to verse 6, okay? Verse 5 ends, fear not. And then verse 6, for thus says the Lord, okay? He's beginning a new part of the message. 
Uh, fear not is the run-up to where he's going. And that's kind of challenging for us because we really like statements like, don't be afraid, be strong, work hard, I'm with you. Those are the kinds of messages we put on get well cards and motivational posters. We love those kind of messages. We don't put verse 6 in a get well card. God's going to shake everything. That's not the kind of hopeful, exciting message that we're looking for. So it would be really convenient for us if, uh, if God just stopped that prophecy right at the end of verse 5. It would be kind of like, um, like William Wallace or King Theoden from the Lord of the Rings uh, getting the army ready, charged up. We're going to ride into battle and they're giving these great lines and speeches and everybody's getting their adrenaline pumping and then it stops. And they don't actually charge in to the battle. See, we love motivational speeches. We love the adrenaline rush. But we don't actually love battle, right? Battles are messy and costly. But a speech like that, without a battle, without a sacrifice, is actually a lost cause. If William Wallace charged up the troops, you know, he's riding his horse and he's got his blue war paint on and he's delivering these great lines like, they may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom. If he does that and then he says, all right, see you guys later. I'm out. Hope it goes well, right? You'd know all you need to. He doesn't actually care about the battle. He doesn't care about the cause. A leader leads even in battle. And God is Israel's leader. And he is charging them up to get ready for the ride that he is going to take them on. He said, I'm going to shake everything. But don't be afraid. Get ready. And you have to notice the significance of the words God chose uh, in this prophecy. He says he's going to shake heaven and earth, sea, and dry land. So very interesting words. In the beginning, God created what? The heavens and the earth. Then he put a firmament in the sky to separate heaven and earth. Then on the third day of creation, God separated sea from dry land. And God is saying, I'm going to shake all of it. Everything above the firmament, everything below the firmament. I'm shaking it all up. This is a, what theologians call decreation language. Okay? God is undoing something that he did in creation week. Imagine that. God sends you a special, special message by a prophet. He says, I'm with you. Don't be afraid. But get ready. Because everything that you've known, I am undoing. It's a good thing he started with don't be afraid, right? Because that's a terrifying message. He's not here suggesting a literal shaking, you know, like earthquakes, though we will see that earthquakes do happen. What he means is there is a massive change-up coming, okay? If your organization experiences a shake-up, you know what that means, right? People are probably being relocated to different positions. Maybe somebody's being given the boot. Uh, maybe you're uh, going in a totally different direction. You're taking on a new emphasis. Something massive is happening, and that's what God's saying is happening. There is a massive change-up that's coming. Well, it's not quite as comforting as I imagine the people in Haggai's time would have hoped. But what does God say he's going to do with the shaking? If you look at verse 7, he says, I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. 
So this shaking that God is going to do is going to result in the treasures of the nations coming in to the temple. That's going to result in a temple full of glory. And that's what's supposed to happen. That's exactly what Israel wants to happen. Um, when, when God met the people at Mount Sinai, how did, he, how did he meet them? He met them on top of the mountain in glory, great light, fire, power. When God gave uh, the instructions to build the tabernacle, how did his, his presence come to rest on the tabernacle? In fire, in power, in light, in glory. When Solomon's temple was finished and dedicated, what happened? God's fire came down on it and it filled the house with glory. Okay, So God's saying, I'm going to fill this house with glory. That is a very exciting prophecy. The shaking, not so sure we like that all that much, but the result sounds wonderful. Something that's worth uh, noting here is that prior to the Babylonian captivity, Israel's wealth was vast. They were very wealthy. In Isaiah, King Hezekiah shows the messengers from Babylon all the wealth, all the treasures, the storehouses of Israel. You wonder, why would you do that? And God says the same thing. He tells uh, Hezekiah, that was a real blunder. That was a real bonehead thing to do. Because not long after that, guess what? Who attacks? Babylon. <laughs> and they plunder their wealth. Right? That's part of why the people were complaining and discouraged. Because they knew the previous wealth of Israel. And they saw what, uh, what their wealth had built. This magnificent temple. And now it's these people who are still trying to live in wealthy ways. Remember, they're paneling their houses. And yet, they're stuck building a poor temple. So it felt like a defeat. And here God tells them that all the treasures of the nations are going to come into the temple. Verse 8, the silver is mine. The gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. God is not uh, here being greedy. Okay, he's not just going, mine, 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 mine. Right? That's not the point. Uh, the point is that God owns everything. He created everything. The treasures of all the nations, he made them. He can bring them into his house. No problem. Verse 9, he says, The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. So he's already said in verse 7 that he would fill the house with glory. And now he's saying, what kind of glory? It is a glory that is going to surpass that of the old house. Wow. Not only that, this is a fulfillment of a different prophecy of Isaiah 2. In Isaiah 2, there's a prophecy that says, In the latter days, uh, the mountain of the house of the Lord is going to be established as the highest mountain. It's going to be lifted above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. Okay? This is backward. Things are supposed to flow down from mountains. All of the nations are going to flow up to the mountain. Wow. Okay. This is the hope of Israel. This is what God says he is going to do. And how exciting is that? And he says, In this place, I will give peace. That word peace, shalom, rest. When God finished his work in creation, he rested. There was peace. And so here, it's very interesting, we have decreation language. God's going to shake everything, the heavens, the earth, the sea, the dry land. And then there is new creation language. God's going to have a new house that he's going to fill with nations and treasures. And its end is going to be Rest, peace. This is a, a prophecy of new creation. And God doesn't want us to miss his seriousness in this. From verses 6 to 9, God says five times, 
five times, either declares the Lord of hosts or says the Lord of hosts. That word host, it's the word Sabaoth. It means armies. Declares the Lord of armies. If you've ever sung uh, the song, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, one of the lines in there says, Lord Sabaoth his name, from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. The Lord of armies is his name, that's why he wins the battle. Okay, Israel had been captured by the army of Babylon, but who is the Lord of armies? Well, the God of Israel. Who has the power to bring the nations to the temple? The Lord of armies. And so five times in four verses, he says that he is the Lord of armies. And then four times in these verses, he declares what he is going to do. He makes four I will statements. Verse 6, he says, I will shake things. Verse 7, I will shake the nations. Also in verse 7, I will fill this house with glory. And then verse 9, I will give peace. So God is declaring who he is and that the people so that the people can know that what he says is going to happen. Okay, Haggai again is prophesying to them about the future of their worship. And he says it is going to be rich. It's going to be full of treasures. It's going to be glorious. There will be peace. And they need to get to work. So how does this happen? Prophecy is a weird thing. Uh, a lot of prophecies in the Bible are, are strange, they're hard to interpret, we don't quite always know what to do with them. And this is the first time we get a, a future prophecy in Haggai, so what we probably tend to think of as prophecy. Some Bible prophecy, like I said, extremely challenging. Uh, thankfully, God provides us with some clues in this one as to how we should understand it. So the first clue is the context in which he gives the prophecy. He gives the prophecy in the context of the Exodus. He says, I'm going to be with you just like when you came out of Egypt. And then he says, I'm going to shake things. Uh, our second clue comes from the book of Hebrews. Hebrews actually quotes Haggai. It's very interesting. So Hebrews in the New Testament, Haggai's in the Old Testament. Hebrews is quoting Haggai, and it says in Hebrews 12, 26, At that time, God's voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. Okay? Saying that God shook the earth is a reference to Exodus. It's a reference to Mount Sinai when God gave the law. And again, he descended on it in fire and power. And we read there in Exodus that the mountain shook. It trembled. Okay, so see how momentous this is. In Exodus, we read that God shakes the earth. In Haggai and in Hebrews, we read that God is going to do something bigger. He's going to shake heaven and earth. What happened at Sinai? This is bigger, God is saying. But this presents a bit of a problem. Because again, Haggai was written in 520 B.C. The book of Hebrews is written in the 60s A.D. So it's some 580 years later. How's that? How is the writer of Hebrews calling up a prophecy that God spoke 580 years earlier? I'm so glad you asked. The temple that Haggai charged the people to build, that he charged Zerubbabel, the governor, to build, is the second temple, okay? The first temple was Solomon's temple, and Zerubbabel built the second one. So from the time of the second temple completion, which happened in 516 B.C., until the second temple's destruction in 70 A.D., that's what we call second temple period Judaism. And so we have to ask... Did this prophecy 
of Haggai come to fruition in this period? Was Haggai prophesying about this temple? Let's consider the evidence. The prophecy we read tells us that the temple was to be full of the treasures of the nations, full of the glory of God, and it was to give peace. In the New Testament, is the temple full of the nations? Hmm? Was it full of their riches? Well, the answer is no. No, Jesus comes along, and what does he do? He rebukes the temple leaders and says, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all, what? Nations, that's right. Where are the nations? What did Jesus find in the temple? He finds it dirty. He finds it full of animals and salesmen. No nations. Okay, strike one. Second, it was to be filled with glory. Okay, we'll we'll talk more about this in a moment. But what do we know happened at the end of the Gospels? The curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, right? The curtain was a thick piece of material that was supposed to separate the most holy place, the place where God's glory dwelt from the holy place. And it tears in two. So imagine the shock. If you're a priest and you go into the temple, uh, if you had seen the glory of God, if you had gone through uh, the curtain when it was, um, when it was uh, solid um, and taken a peek at what was inside, you'd have been struck dead right on the spot. Okay, so imagine if you're a priest, you go into the temple and you're performing your service of worship. You look up and you see the curtain is torn. You can see right through it. You can see the holy place. You can see the Ark of the Covenant. And guess what? You're still alive. God's glory wasn't there. The temple was vacant of glory. Strike two. There's no glory. Third, the temple was to give peace. That's that rest, that shalom, the Sabbath hope. But we know that wasn't happening either, right? Israel, uh, there, there was a nation present in Israel other than Israel, and it was the nation of Rome who came in to dominate Israel. There was no peace there. They were living under foreign rule. The temple was not giving rest. They were being dominated. Okay, strike three. So did the prophecy of Haggai get fulfilled in the time of the second temple? The answer is no. That's why the writer of Hebrews picks it back up. But so we have to ask the question, how does it get fulfilled? I said a few moments ago that God's glory, his light, came upon the tabernacle in the wilderness. It came upon the temple when it was completed. It came upon Mount Sinai, right? They were dedicated to God. They were completed. They were filled with the light of his glory. Well, we don't have, we don't have any notes about that uh, in, in the Bible, about that happening to Zerubbabel's temple, the second temple. We read about the completion of the temple and its dedication in the book of Ezra. But we don't read about God descending on it, about his light coming to it. Okay, well, this should raise some questions in our minds. Because this is how God shows up. He shows up with great glory. Where is it? In creation, God spoke light. At Sodom and Gomorrah even. Right? God blinded the people with the brightness of his glory. In the Exodus, God leads the people by fire, by light. When God comes to the temple, again, it's in blazing light. So curious then that we get the second temple completion, but there's no light. Think about this. Okay. Haggai is this little book of prophecy, and it's written in 520 B.C., 
Okay, it's right at the end of the Old Testament. Right after that, you get Zechariah. Zechariah is a contemporary of Haggai's. He's also 520 B.C. And then we get the last book in the Old Testament. It's the book of Malachi. Okay? And it was written after the completion of the temple. So sometime just after 516 B.C. So in this little you know, frame here, we've got the construction of the temple and its completion. Where is the light? The answer is, you turn the page, and what do you get to? You get to the Gospels. That's right. And I'm going to jump to the Gospel according to John, and I think you'll see why. John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The light did come. But who is the light? It's Jesus Christ. God said he would shake the heavens and the earth, and what happened? A man from heaven came down. What happened when Christ got baptized? The heavens shook. The sky was torn open. And the people could hear God speak. And he said, this is my son. Listen to him. When Jesus was crucified, we read there was an earthquake. The temple shook. The curtain tore. At the resurrection, what happened? An earthquake opened up the tomb. So with the advent of Christ, the heavens and the earth began to shake. In Christ, the glory of God did come to the temple. But what did the temple leaders do to him? They rejected the glory. They committed deicide. They killed God. God was the builder of the temple. It was for him. It was his house. He comes to it, and what happens? They kick him out, and they kill him. And so, what did God do? God destroyed that temple. That was the end of the shaking. The destruction of the temple marked an end of an old age. That's the decreation of an old world. That's what this prophecy about decreation is about. And then we get the prophecy of recreation, new creation. And when did that begin? It began on Sunday morning. On Sunday morning, on the first day of the week when Christ rose from the dead. The New Testament tells us that we are members of a new creation. We ourselves are new creations. The old has passed away. The new has come. In 1 John chapter 2, we read that the dark world is passing away and the true light is already shining. Okay? One world is passing away and a new light was already shining. John was not writing about today. He was writing about then, 2,000 years ago. He was writing about what began in the resurrection of Jesus. So in John 1, we learn that Jesus is the light of the glory of God. And in John 2, then we learn why Jesus came. Jesus cleanses the temple in John 2, and the rulers ask him, What are you doing? Why are you doing this? What sign are you going to show us to justify why you're doing this? And what does he tell the temple rulers? He tells them, Destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. And of course, they look at him and think, that's ridiculous. That's nonsense. It took decades to build this temple. But they didn't understand. 
He was talking about a different temple. Jesus came to be a temple. And just like Solomon's temple, he was torn down. But here is the extraordinary part. The temple of Solomon was torn down. The second temple, the temple of Zerubbabel, was eventually torn down. The temple of Christ was torn down. And unlike the first temple that took 70 years before it was rebuilt, and it was rebuilt by grumblers, complainers in Haggai's day, and unlike the second temple, which has never been rebuilt, the temple of Christ was rebuilt. It was rebuilt in three days by God himself. God said, he will glorify the temple, and he will fill it. God is the builder of the temple in which we worship. And if it's possible for this to get even more amazing, think about this. The the first part that you have to build when you build a house is what? The foundation, right? You've got to have something to build on, okay? Same with the temple. It needs a foundation, okay? For worship to take place, you need two things. You need an altar for sacrifice, and you need a foundation, Okay, that's how worship could take place. That was the bare minimum. How does Ephesians describe the resurrection of Christ? This isn't a a passage that we typically think about in terms of resurrection. But in Ephesians 2.19, it says, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Christ came as a temple. He died as a temple and he came back a foundation. A foundation for a new temple. And that foundation is still a temple. You can still have worship there. The altar that we have is still the cross. That's where the sacrifice happened. The foundation for worship is Jesus Christ. But what's being built, what's being rebuilt on top of that foundation, verse 22 of Ephesians 2. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You are what God is building on the foundation of Christ. So Christ is a temple. Let's quickly run through this question then. Okay, if he's a temple... Uh, Well, what are the requirements for this temple, for this prophecy to be true of him? Riches or treasures, glory, peace. Okay, let's let's do that test real quick. God says in his temple, that's what's going to happen. So what are the treasures? What are the riches? What are the treasures that will ornament God's temple? I'm going to give you just a few answers. In Ephesians 1... Paul says that the Ephesian, uh, Paul prays that the Ephesian people would have their hearts enlightened to know what is the hope that they've been called to and what are the riches, treasures of God's glorious inheritance in the saints. According to Paul, the saints are God's inheritance and he considers it a rich and glorious inheritance. Also in Ephesians 1, Paul speaks of a few, well, speaks of one set of riches, and then we get a couple set of riches in Ephesians 3. In Ephesians 1, he speaks of the riches of God's grace. In Ephesians 3, he speaks of the unsearchable riches of Christ and the riches of his glory that is his spirit within us. So the riches of God's kingdom are threefold. They're grace, they're Christ, they are his spirit. And what does God do with his riches? 
We're told that God poured out his grace, the riches of his grace on us. He lavished us with the riches of his grace. Christ, who is the unsearchable riches, came for you. And according to Colossians, the riches of God's of the glory of God's mystery is Christ in you by the Spirit. So God pours out his riches on you. He sends the riches of his Son for you, and he pours out the riches of his Spirit in you. And by doing that, what happens? You become his riches. God wants an incalculable number of saints. We don't know how many. Revelation tells us nobody can count that high. Okay, But God's going to look out at all of it and say, See my riches. See, the riches of my grace that was sufficient for this incalculable number. The riches of Christ that were sufficient to clothe all of them with splendor. The riches of my spirit that was sufficient to fill them with righteousness. That is the future, the riches of Christian worship. If you, well, case in point, I'll, uh, what happened after God shook the heavens and the earth? Um, in Acts chapter 2, suddenly we have this picture of nations... The nations are there present in Jerusalem, and what happens? God descends again in fire, right? He descends on the people. Light, the glory of God, suddenly shows up again. This is new temple language. Suddenly God's fire is there, and what happens? They begin telling all the people, all of the nations, that they can meet with God. Wow. Before Christ ascended, what happened? He sent out his disciples, what? To gather the nations, to teach them, to baptize them, to bring them in. So is the temple that God is building full of the riches, the treasures of the nations? Absolutely. What about glory? Is the temple that God is building a temple full of his glory? Let Christ's baptism, what happened? The spirit of glory descended on him. Again, it's temple language. When the Lord met Paul on the road to Damascus, what happened? He was blinded by the glory of Jesus. And again, at Pentecost, like we just said, what happened? Spirit descends in glory on the people. This is a new temple and it is full of glory. And so is the same spirit of glory that filled the temple, that filled Jesus, that filled the apostles, is that same spirit also in you? Yes and amen. Think about it. Uh, uh, there's this wonderful thing that happens in, uh, in the book of Matthew. Uh, Jesus gives us a double mic drop to just kind of give us a flavor of the sense of his, uh, his glory, how great he is. And in Matthew chapter 12, um, he, he's describing what his temple is going to be like. And the religious leaders start harassing him about how he is a Sabbath breaker. And he leans in and he tells them, you know, the priests, they profane the Sabbath. They're working in the temple and yet they're held guiltless. But let me tell you something. Something greater than the temple is here. And then just a little while later, he does it again. He, he starts um, preaching woes to the nations, or to, to, the, uh, to the people. Um, and he says that the nations are actually going to rise up in the judgment and condemn them because the nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. The nations were present in Solomon's temple. Uh-oh, they're not present here. And then what does he say? He says something greater than Solomon is here. Paul says that the light of the gospel is the glory of Christ. And so, yes, the house that's built upon him is radiant. She is full of glory. And then lastly, what about peace? The capstone of Haggai's prophecy isn't riches and glory. It's actually peace. He mentions riches and glory each twice. But then he says, in that place, I will give peace. So is there peace? Is there rest? Shalom 
in Christ's temple. What does he say? He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Colossians 1 says, through Christ, God was reconciling all things in heaven and on earth, making peace, making peace by the blood of his cross. So in Christ's temple, there is peace with God. So much so that the most holy place, the place that the priests were not allowed to go, that only the high priest could go once a year, there is such peace in God's temple that we, we can actually walk right in there. We don't have to fear what's on the other side of the curtain. Christ's sacrifice was sufficient to tear that curtain so that we could walk right in and be present with God immediately in his throne room, face his glory face to face. And church, that is not just a future reality. That's a present reality. We don't get to see the fullness of God's glory right now, okay? We're still uh, stuck in these bodies of sin. We need, uh, we need the kind of uh, final product of our redemption to, to come so that we can look face to face with God. But in terms of being present with God, having access to him, this is a present reality now. We come together as the temple of God. We are living sacrifices. We make uh, our sacrifice of praise, Hebrews tells us. We give our offerings. We do everything that we do in the name of Jesus, and God meets with us. He receives us just like he received the Old Testament sacrifices, and we are pleasing to him. This is indeed a house of peace. We have peace with God. We have peace with one another. We are even at peace in a world that is churning with chaos. So, according to the writer of Hebrews, Haggai is not talking about Zerubbabel's temple. Haggai is prophesying about Christ. And now lastly, I said we've got work to do. We said the future of Christian worship, remember, is rich, it's glorious, it flows with peace, and we're building it. Well, how does that work? Didn't we say that God is the builder? Yes, we did. But he still often, he likes to use people to do his work. Haggai may have been looking at Zerubbabel's temple, not knowing that he was prophesying about another, but regardless, he still told the people, get to work. You have things to do. God does this. He likes to use human means. When God gave a vision of the tabernacle to Moses, what did he do right after that? He said, I'm now I'm going to give you the plans, the plans to have it built. Okay, and they're very precise plans. The same thing happens to David. David has this vision. He wants to build a temple. God tells him how the temple's going to be. Then he tells him, but Solomon's going to, to build it. He gives him plans, right? This is how long the things are supposed to be, how many bases they're supposed to have, how, t how high the curtains are and all of that, right? This is how you build. And you may say, well, that's all fine and good, but we don't have something like that in the New Testament. And I would say, oh, yes, we do. In Revelation 21, in the first part of Revelation 21, we get this picture of the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. Remember, the heavens were shaken, right? And so suddenly, in Revelation 21, the heavens are open, and there's something coming down out of it. At one point, God had a tent in heaven that resembled his tent on earth, right? Well, just like on earth, there was a temple that was being built. And suddenly, we're discovering that there's a heavenly temple that's now descending down out of heaven, and it's coming to be united with earth. So God dwelt in a tent, but he was building a temple, and we get to see what this temple is like. And we read this wonderful description about it. The description says that the city is beautiful. God dwells within her. In this city, 
There are no more tears or death, no more mourning or crying, no pain. Well, that sounds really wonderful, doesn't it? Well, how do we build that? Well, then something curious happens. We get a second vision. An angel comes to John and says, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, okay, there's one, and the radiance like a most rare jewel, a treasure, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had high walls with 12 gates. Um, I'm going to take a minute to read just part of it for you. So this is uh, Revelation 21, starting in verse 15. It says, And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies foursquare, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. We're getting specific here. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its walls, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold. Remember God said the gold is mine, the silver is mine, but it's clear as glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, which is just very interesting. Where do pearls come from? They come from the sea. Well, God said he was going to shake the land and the sea. He's going he's to get their riches too. And each gate was made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. This is the city that God is building. And yet he gives John this vision for the church so that it can know what it's supposed to build. God is the temple builder, but he is glad to use us as the material. What does this mean? Do we need to start investing in gold like the TV and the ads online keep telling us? Uh, were my uh, present and past descendants right uh, to be in the jewelry business? Well, nothing wrong with being in the jewelry business, but it's stereotypical of a Jewish family. So, um, But that's not what we're talking about. Okay? That's not how we are building. Again, God's people are the jewels because they are his city. God's people are the treasures. They are the silver and gold. But how are they harvested? If you find a gold mine or uh, an emerald mine, diamond mine, whatever it is, how do you get it out? You have to work hard. You pick it out, right? You bring it out into the, line, the light. And then what has to happen? The gold has to be purified. The gems have to be cut. God's word is a blade that cuts. It's a fire that purifies we are building the future temple, the city of eternal worship, the city of God. And if you look around, we've got a long way to go, right? We've got a lot of dross that's still within us that needs to be consumed, a lot of rough edges that we still need God's blade to cut and to smooth out. So how do we do this? How do we build? The way you start building is by giving yourself to God. In doing that, you are saying, I am yours. I'm a stone in your hand. Shape me as you see fit. Mold me and set me right up to the cornerstone of Christ so that I can measure, be just like him. I don't want to be out of whack. Uh, I want to have a, just a perfect uh, lineup right against him. 
Giving yourself to God is putting a stone in his hand for him to lay on the foundation. And if God is placing you on the foundation with other stones, that means you have to fit with the other stones too. So we give ourselves to God and we need to give ourselves to each other. By giving yourselves to each other, you are modeling Christ. You are becoming like him. You are lining up with the cornerstone. And that's what we want at City Church. We are obviously uh, not looking to build this place with silver and gold and jewels. If we were, we would be doing a really bad job. We are looking to be shaped by God and fit together. We want to see you grow. We want to see you built. We want to grow with you. And our tools for the process are the blade of the word and the heat of the word. But this doesn't only happen when you sit down for like a private devotional time. The building, the shaping happens when we're here, assembled as the temple. It happens at your dinner table when the spirit is pressing on you because you said that thing that you shouldn't have said and you're feeling guilty about it. And you need to go make it right. It happens when you serve others. God smooths out those rough edges. It happens when you pray with and for your kids. It happens when you're going to bed and you're agonizing about something that you really need to talk to somebody else about and you're just kept up at night because you know you need to obey the Lord. It happens when the Spirit weighs on your heart at work and you need to go chat with that person. They need to hear about Jesus. It happens in the car when you're waiting at the train that is taking forever and you have to pray to the Lord for patience. God refines us and builds us as we follow Jesus, as we learn to do what Jesus did, which is to say, actually, as we learn to die. We may have many things, uh, many ways that we like to do things, right? Ways that we like to handle problems. And God may say if some of those things, yeah, you can't do it that way. That's not allowed. That's a sinful way. And so guess what? It has to die. Part of you has to die. But when we die in Christ, what does God do? He raises us up again in glory. When you confess your wrongs, that's a type of death. That's why we sit down to confess at the beginning of the service. But after we confess, what do we do? We rise up and God speaks to us. We receive his word. God does not distance himself from us. We are temple builders. God's charge in Haggai is his charge to us. Be strong. Work hard. He's with us. If you're not with us, uh, if you are a guest, you're checking this out, um, you're not a member here, but you'd like to be, we'd love to have you with us. We'd love to have you here to be a part of, of your shaping, uh, to have you a part of our shaping, to help us build and to, to, to be built into whatever God is going to do with us. The great shaking of heaven and earth produced the house. So when God shakes something in your life, don't be afraid. Don't fear the earthquake. Fear God who sends the earthquake and trust the solid foundation that you have been built upon. God is building a house full of treasures in Jesus Christ. He is building a house full of his glory and full of peace. Let me close with this, with verse 9 from our text. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. The Lord of armies has spoken, church. And the glory, the treasures, and the peace that he has promised is most certain to come. Let's pray. Our Father in God, we thank you for your great kindness. You work in ways that we cannot begin to imagine. 
but they're far greater. When the people were discouraged, when they didn't know where they were going or what they were doing, you led them. You gave them plans. You told them to build. You told them to work hard. You said, I'm with you. Lord, you shake things. You've shaken heaven and earth and produced the most glorious house. When you shake our lives, help us to trust you. Lord, would you build us up further into the image of Jesus? You say that uh, the, the gold is yours. The silver is yours. Lord, we, we are those things. We are yours. Take us, use us, shape us as you will. By your spirit, we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.